This is kind of dark, but one of the shows that my wife and I like to watch together is Dateline on NBC. If you haven't seen it, it's one of those true crime shows that deals with betrayal and adultery, murder, and usually some type of cover-up. The reason I bring this up is because the story I'm going to tell you today would probably make a really interesting Dateline episode. Our story starts with King David, who you may recall slayed the giant Goliath and goes on to become king of Israel. Uh, David, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. And David becomes really blessed by God in many ways. But somewhere along the line, David loses his way. And that's where we're going to pick up our story today. So David, at this time when he was king, is, uh, he's supposed to be leading his men into combat. And Israel's engaged in this bloody war. But David has seen a lot of combat in his day, and he is tired of combat. He's exhausted from the endless marching in the hot, dusty desert. He's tired of the lack of sleep, the lack of food, and also the possibility of being maimed or killed in combat, not to mention watching your friends die in combat as well. So David decides that he's just going to sit this one out, even though he knows that God wants him to be with his men in combat. And so while his men are away at combat and David's at home, one afternoon he decides he's going to take a stroll on the roof of his palace. And as he's walking along the roof of his palace, he notices a beautiful woman bathing. Now you would hope that he would avert his eyes and look away, but he doesn't. He stops and he stares. And David, of course, is the most powerful man in all of the land, and he can have anything he wants. And so he asks his servants, who is that beautiful woman? And they say, that's Bathsheba the wife of Uriah, your soldier who's off to war. And so David has Bathsheba brought to him, and he sleeps with her and sends her away. And so you would hope that David would see his sin immediately and repent, but he doesn't. But things go from bad to worse for David when Bathsheba sends word to him that she is with child. Again, you'd hope that this would wake him up and that he would repent, but instead of repenting, he goes up into cover, he goes into cover up mode. And he comes up with this plan. What he's going to do is he's going to have Uriah come home from battle and go home and have a nice feast and and sleep and enjoy all the comforts of home. And that way, everyone will think that it's Uriah's kid and not David's. After all, there's no fraternity test back in this day. So in David's mind, this is a great plan. And so that's what he does. He sends for Uriah. Uriah comes home. He greets him. He says, Uriah, I'm so glad that you're back. You deserve a break. I want you to go home, have a big feast, sleep, enjoy all the comforts of home. There's just one problem for David. Uriah won't go home. He won't sleep in his own home. The next day, David sees Uriah and he says, Uriah, why won't you go home? Why won't you sleep at home? And Uriah says, you expect me to go home and enjoy all the comforts of home while my men are away at combat, fighting? Uriah says, I'm not going to do that. David, of course, is frustrated. So the next night, he brings Uriah over, feeds him a big feast, gives him a little too much to drink, hoping that will impair his judgment, but still, Uriah refuses to go home and sleep, and David is just frustrated. He can't believe this. Why won't this guy just follow my plan? He's thinking, just go home, sleep, because pretty soon Bathsheba is going to get pregnant and have a baby, and Uriah is going to know it's not his, right? So David's got to figure out a way out of this jam. So he comes up with a different plan. This is David's master plan. What he does is he sends Uriah back to the battlefield, and with Uriah, he gives a letter to his generals. And he orders his generals to place Uriah at the very front lines of a very intense battle. Now, David is a warrior. He knows at the front lines of these intense battles, the casualty rates are extremely high. He knows that Uriah has a very good chance of dying. In fact, that is David's plan. That is his intent. He wants to have Uriah killed. He is going to murder Uriah through this battle. 
And sadly and tragically, his plan works masterfully. Uriah is struck down and killed in this battle. Word gets back to David and he's relieved. Finally, he's out of this jam. Bathsheba hears about it. She's, of course, devastated. And after her time for mourning, David brings Bathsheba to him and he marries her. And all the while, he never even sees his sin, never repents until one man named named Nathan, a prophet, comes and tells David a story. He tells David a story about this rich man who had plenty of, of everything, abundance, flocks and herds and anything he ever wanted and needed. And another man, a poor man, who had just one lamb who he loved. And this rich man takes the one lamb that this poor man had. David hears this and he's outraged. Who would do this? Who is this man? Bring him to me. He needs to be brought to justice. This is terrible. I need, I need to find out who this man is. Bring him to me because he needs to be brought to justice. And Nathan tells David, you are that man. Finally, David sees his sin, and he repents. We're wrapping up the How to Make a Bad Decision series today, and um, kind of a fun title. I'm going to be Captain Obvious. We're not really doing this to learn how to make a bad decision. (laughs) So we're looking at these decisions that we find in Scripture so that we can learn from them, pull them apart piece by piece, and so we can avoid making bad decisions. But there's another reason that we're looking at these decisions And it's because we tend to confuse mistakes with bad decisions. Here's a headline from the UK. I wasn't going to take the chance of doing a U.S. headline, (laughs) mixing into the fray. But it says, cocaine mistake, a deep regret. That tends to be how, how people in the public eye, it's really hard to mistakenly snort cocaine. I mean, that would be a difficult thing. Uh, but that tends to be athletes who get caught in doping can, uh, scandals. I read some articles. They call it a mistake. Uh, politicians who cheat on their wives. I made a big mistake. Business person who leaves a portion of his income off of the IRS form. Well, it was, sorry, my mistake. When people caught in wrongdoing who are in the public eye, I always pay attention to how they respond, what they say, what they do with that, because their response is going to determine a lot in terms of how effectively they unwind the mess they've made. It's really important how we respond to that. During this series, we've looked at some epic bad decisions so we can effectively unwind them God's way. So he not only shows us the bad decisions, and that's the thing about Scripture. It shows real people living real life. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I can see myself in those folks. I, 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 can, I can see. But they, they, God put them in there, warts and all, 
so that we can learn from them so that we don't have to make our own mistakes. Esau was our first week. He made a hasty decision focused on the short term, and it cost him a fortune. Rehoboam rejected wise counsel. We looked at that second week of this series. It cost him more than half of his kingdom. How, uh, Samson gave in to pressure, and it cost him his life. Today, we're going to look at King David's biggest, darkest moment in his life. He led the nation of Israel into its glory days, and rightly so. He's honored for his leadership, and it is said in Scripture that he was a man after God's own heart. How do you go, though, from a brave shepherd hero who steps up to defend God's honor and stands down a giant to do a despicable thing like he did in our story that Ryan just told? The decisions he made in the incident with Bathsheba are criminal. Here's, here's a picture of him in his glory days. Is this... This statue, I think this was actually snapped. This photo was snapped by my friend Josh Delarosa because he was just in Italy. And, um, he, he, uh, this, this is a piece of art. It's very famous. Michelangelo depicts the determination in his eyes. You can see the eyes. You can see the slingshot over his shoulder. And he defeated Goliath. With a few stones and a slingshot. Under David's rule, Israel begins a golden age where there's one victory after a, a, another. But he is a very controversial figure, especially looking back from our modern times. Very, very com- controversial. I actually made a woman mad by calling him a hero in a message one time. Because I was telling this story, I was talking about how he's a man after God's own heart, and she let me know that was not good. (laughs) It's what happens when you speak in public. Sometimes people come after you. You know, that's okay. I could take it. But the interesting thing is, I cringe to see what he did. I, I, it, it just, wow. It is not good. His actions were definitely despicable. Really despicable. But the truth is, he he was both a hero and a zero. You know, that just because he he went into the negative and was criminal, that doesn't mean he didn't do the good things. And if we're honest, all of us are a mix of noble and cruel. We have this ability to be very noble because God put that into us in the way that we were made. But we also, in a moment's notice, can be very cruel (laughs) to get what we want. There is absolutely no excuse for David's criminal actions. In fact, that's a point I'm making in this message. We'll make it later on. But at the same time... We don't really know what it's like to rule a country with the power to command obedience like he had. 
19th century British politician and historian, Lord Acton, is known for this famous quote. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. And I think that's true because all of us are this mix of noble and cruel. And honestly, I'm uncomfortable just talking about this stuff. <laughs> if you're cringing, hey, I'm right there with you. This is not comfortable, but we're going to see how God handles this. And what he's looking at is he watches our lives play out. The mix of noble and cruel. He is ready to respond to the way we handle our wrongdoing. So let's break down the elements of David's despicable decision. First of all, he shunned responsibility. Second Samuel 11, 1 says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, that was his duty, that was his responsibility. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This doesn't seem like a big deal, but kings were supposed to go off to war at this time of year. And this is the beginning of a series of really bad decisions that David makes. Stop and reflect on your core responsibilities, the thing that the things that are on your plate right now. Those areas that require you to keep a firm grip mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. Don't loosen your grip like David did. Don't don't slack off from those. It's a setup for what follows in David's life and in our life. Second element, he made himself vulnerable. Verse 2, 2 Samuel 11 says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, David avoided responsibility of going to war. It was tied to his power and position. And he became vulnerable because he had time to burn. <laughs> and so he strolls up on the roof. He probably knew what he would see on the roof. He sees the woman bathing. And the rest is, is history. Let's all stop and ask ourselves, when and where are we most vulnerable? When is it? Don't, don't, don't put yourself in that spot. The third element of David's decision is that he sinned and covered it up. Uh, 3 and 4, verse 3 and 4, Second Samuel 11. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him and he slept with her. So David wrongly uses his power to get what he wants, and it's completely out of bounds from what God would want him to do. He sends Bathsheba home. You heard Ryan tell the story. Later, he learns that she's pregnant. And the problem is Uriah is off the war. Everybody's going to know as her belly grows, 
they're going to know this is not Uriah's baby. David launches into a cover-up scheme. You heard Ryan tell it. He sends uh, for Uriah to come home. Sleep with, hopefully, he's hoping he'd sleep with his wife and then paternity could be established, or at least it would look like it was Uriah's baby. Uriah's a good man. He, he will not go home and enjoy the comforts of home because he's thinking of his troops out where David should be. He's thinking of him. He's thinking of them. So instead, he sleeps each night with the servants in the palace. David tries to get him drunk. He still refuses to go. And David's actions show us something really important. Covering up sin magnifies and multiplies your trouble. David's next move is to widen the circle of accomplices in his wrongdoing. And he includes Joab, the general of his army. This is what he tells Joab. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now, this is not the end of the chapter in this story because, first of all, what's happening is the stability in David's leadership is beginning to crumble because he keeps adding to the number of people who know about his wrongdoing or at least suspect it. God, first of all, he always sees what's going on in our world. Bathsheba, Joab, the messenger that took the letter to Joab, the others in the palace who were there when he brought Bathsheba over, the messenger that brought her over. The circle is getting wider and wider and wider as David's guilt increases. And all the while, trust in David's leadership erodes as he works his evil plan. It wasn't until he was confronted by the prophet Nathan that he admitted his sin and repented of it. David paid a, a high price for his sin, and so did his family line. But still, what's amazing, and this is the uncomfortable part that doesn't always make sense to us, but still, God shows unlimited grace. The first week I, I talked about, the first week of this series, I talked about Making a decision that marks your identity. Have you ever made one of those? Esau did. His, his nickname became Edom after the red stew that he traded for his birthright. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I don't know if you've ever had a nickname because I was, I was kind of referred to as a bull in the china closet. Not horrible. You know, I was clumsy. You know, I, I, I would, 
you know, drop plates and all kinds of stuff. But still, it kind of it kind of sets you up. So hey, I'm I'm clumsy. That's what I am. I'm that's it. I don't know if you've had a decision that has marked your identity, like Esau. But God gives us real stories of people in the Scripture to remind us over and over and over again we're never too far removed from His grace. Never. We're never removed from the grace of God. David's family paid an immediate price. But Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David. If God only worked through perfect people, he would never never work through people at all. That's one of the things that God's communicating to us through this story. Because when the first man and woman sinned, he could have scrapped his plan, his intent to use them as the folks who would populate the earth. He could have started all over, but he didn't. What he did is he put in a plan to show his grace to the people he made. And he continually pours it out to us. God graciously forgives. He doesn't give up on those who turn from their sin. That's what repentance is. It's, it's to do a 180. So you're walking this way, and you turn around from your sin, and you decide to go God's way. If you repent of your sin, God graciously forgives. And he gives a new identity in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So with the grace of God as a backdrop, I'd like to look at how to avoid compromise. First of all, be diligent. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Working hard protects us from harm and poor decision-making. David should have been off to war. He was hanging out at home and got into trouble. Doing what we need to do, focusing on our responsibilities, being diligent in them protects us. The word diligent here in this passage, it was originally written in Hebrew. It means sharp and determined. It means to have a laser focus to do what needs to be done in our life. When we get into laziness, we get off track. We go off the path, and we go down a very, very harmful way. We avoid compromise by aiming to not make ourselves vulnerable. So don't make yourself vulnerable. Second way to avoid compromise. Proverbs 5, 7, and 10. I don't have it on the screen, but it's a passage. It's interesting. It's a passage about... Uh, a young man not going down the street where the adulteress lives who stands on the porch and calls him in. So the idea of this passage, and you can read it on your own sometime, but the idea of the passage is put some distance between you and wrongdoing. Put some distance between you and temptation. 
Build a hedge between yourself and the things that tempt you. When I was younger, I would, I, you know, I would, I would try to show how strong I was by going right up to the temptation. You know what happens when you just put yourself in a, a sor- around a source of temptation? You know, you, you hit the deck. That's what happens. So don't do it. Build a hedge. If you struggle with pornography, don't get on the computer alone at night. Don't do it. Just stay back away from it. If if you struggle with um, uh, with a specific relationship with someone, just don't be alone with them. Just don't do it. Build a hedge between yourself and the temptation. There's no need to prove how strong you are. <laughs> there isn't. By getting close to the temptation. The word vulnerable, it's interesting. In the Latin, it means able to be wounded. That's what it means to be vulnerable. We shouldn't put ourselves in situations that make us vulnerable and open to harm. James White, a pastor and author, where the idea for this series came from, he gives three ways to make yourself vulnerable. First one, restless energy. When we're not busy doing what we should, we tend to get into trouble. And that's what happened with David. That's, that's the story. Proverbs 21-25 says, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for, the hand, for his hands refuse to labor. Have you ever made a, de- a bad decision because you're bored? I, I have. I was, my, my wife, my, my wife's mother, uh, my mother-in-law passed away this week. So she was up with her and I was home and I'm just sitting around just eating like crazy. I mean, it's almost impossible not to go to the refrigerator when you're just sitting at home alone. <laughs> so I overeat. When I, when I'm bored, um, I, I spend more money. The Amazon truck shows up more often when I'm sitting around. Oh, hey, hey, I think I need that. You know, I don't, I don't spend a fortune, but it all adds up to possibly a fortune. (laughs) But you know, you spend more, you eat more. Boredom, that's because boredom feeds desire. It's, it's really difficult to be bored and stay on track. Restless energy is the opposite of diligence. Too much time on our hands from ignoring responsibility is not good. Second thing to watch out for is the flip side of restless energy, emotional depletion. If you're exhausted, spent, drained, stressed, worn out, however you want to say it, you are vulnerable. You're in a vulnerable spot. You can't pick up your shield to fight mentally or spiritually. It's crucial when you're depleted to find some ways to get filled up. This is why God established the Sabbath. God made the world in six days. On the seventh day, which makes up our week, he rested. And he built that into the order of 
creation. He rested on the seventh day of creation to set an example. He didn't need the break. He has all the energy that he supplies us with. But he made us to need a good rest and a recharge about once a week. He modeled that for us. So pay attention to three gauges. Physical, spiritual, and emotional. It's trouble if any of those get on empty. If the physical gauge is low, get some sleep, do some exercise, eat healthy. If the spiritual gauge is low, get around some people who are going to encourage you. That's what our groups are all about. Getting around people who are going to encourage you in in your walk with the Lord. Spend some time with God. Spend some time with Christians who can encourage you. And if you're emotionally down, slow down, focus on rest and renewal. And it's also good to get around encouraging people. Find some people who are encouraging and get some time with them. So the third thing to watch out for, which makes us vulnerable, is refusing to admit weakness. And this is one of my main points in this message. Proverbs 10:9 says, whoever walks in integrity... Walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. David was found out. Integrity, it's an interesting word here in this passage. It means to be blameless. To be blameless in scripture, in the Hebrew here, is to make sure that no one can point a finger at you and say that you've wronged them. And haven't made it right. That's the point of blamelessness. Nobody's perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. But what God tells me to do is make sure that as things come to mind that I've done wrong, if I've wronged someone else, first of all, I confess it to God. I get it right with him. I admit my weakness before God. And then I go straighten it out with the person. Make restitution, make it right, do whatever I need to do. Nobody's perfect, but we need to clean up when we mess up. That's what Scripture's saying. There's security in God because of His grace to admit our weaknesses. If, if that's the thing about walking with God, knowing God, walking with Him through life, you can experience his forgiveness and grace over and over and over again. And this brings us to the final part of this chapter of David's life. He finally shows that if you compromise, confess. David did some despicable things. He will never be able to erase the wrongs he's done and the impact they made on the people around him. But God... Can forgive. In the end, he finally didn't run and make excuses. He owned up to his sin. This was the beginning of a psalm he wrote as he wrapped up this chapter in his life. Psalm 51, 1 and 2. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went after him, or went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy on me. This is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he's dodging. He's trying to justify himself. He refuses to admit his wrong. And finally, he comes to a place where he confesses to God his wrong. He came clean to Nathan, and more importantly, he came clean to God. And if you have blown it, you are not forever tainted by your sin. You can be washed clean. God can renew your life. But how you respond to the wrongdoing is crucial as to whether or not you're going to unwind the mess in the best possible way. Anley Stanley is uh, An- Anley. Andy. I think his name's Andy. He's a pastor who says it like this. If we settle for merely calling ourselves mistakers then we will never admit we're sinners. If we never admit we're sinners, then we'll never admit our need for a Savior. We'll never admit our need for God if we don't confess our sin. If you've made a bad decision, the most important and first step in responding to it is to admit you're wrong and call it what it is. It was sin. Sin is a word that describes what separates us from God. The word means to act contrary to the will and law of God. When we step outside of moral boundaries to get what we want or just do what we feel regardless of what's right, we sin. The Bible tells us that unless we admit our sin, we will never experience God's forgiveness because there's no need to forgive mistakes. It's, It's a mistake. No need. But wow, I'm a mistaker sounds so much better than I'm a sinner, doesn't it? <laughs> what I listen for and as I read a response of a public person caught in a scandal is whether or not they take full responsibility for what they've done. And that's rare. The best first step in handling our wrongdoing is to confess it. If we don't confess our wrong, we never experience the forgiveness and grace of God. We're just left to justify our actions. We can't erase them. They happen. They occurred. God forgives confessed sin, and he promises to work with us to unwind the mess we've made. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and will cleanse you. From all unrighteousness. Admitting you're wrong also begins to rebuild the trust that's eroded from those you've wronged. It also increases your credibility because they know you messed up. So when you admit it finally, that really, really makes a big difference. Fully confessing your sin is the first and most crucial step to begin to unwind the mess you've made. When we confess, God begins to work for us, not against us. Covering up sin magnifies and multiplies our trouble. Confessing sin brings freedom, forgiveness and freedom. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to consider some next steps as I wrap up the message this morning. Uh, Here are my suggestions. First of all, read Psalm 51. 
this week and record key insights. This is a passage where David is confessing to God. I read the first two verses. He's confessing to God. He's working through his sin. It is really helpful to see how God wants us to view our wrongdoing. Second step would be ask God to show me vulnerabilities I have in my life. If they're, if they're there, stay away, stay, stay back, put distance, build a hedge. And then finally, uh, attend the Building Blocks for Wise Decisions workshop. In this workshop, we're going to give attention to the components of making wise decisions. Um, and you can sign up by writing building blocks on the back of your connection card. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth that we see in your word that really does set us free. God, nobody's perfect. We've all done wrong. We've all sinned. Every person on the face of the earth has sinned before you, except for Jesus Christ. He never sinned. And God, we we thank you for the grace that you pour out, the forgiveness that you give, and the help that you offer as we set out to do what uh, you have given us to do. Help us to stay laser-focused on our responsibilities so that we bring honor to you in our faithfulness, God. We ask for this help in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. I'd like to let you know we're turning the channel next week. We're going to start a new message series. We've called it Streams of Thought because... Thoughts tend to flow in streams. That's the way they flow. And if we're not careful, if we don't direct our thoughts in the right way, they actually take us down. They tend to go negative. And so God's given us a tremendous amount of help for how to redirect our thoughts toward the the things that please him and end up being really positive help for us. So I want to encourage you, if you would, come back next week. We'd love to have you. Thanks.